0: Every so often, you discover a musician whose instrumental performance literally boggles your mind and leaves you overjoyed, amazed, and virtually speechless. Bassist Victor Wooten is without a doubt one of the finest bassists on the planet, having been honored as Bass Player Magazine's Bass Player of the Year, not once, but a staggering three times. Victor has been learning, playing, and performing since he was three years old, and was raised in a home where music was part of his family's everyday life. Having been a member of Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tone since the late 80s, Victor has toured the world, performing for millions of fans and gaining vast notoriety as a bass virtuoso. He has also released several solo projects and has lent his talent to a variety of projects for other musicians. <laughs> Having been described as a bassist who has reinvented how the bass guitar is played, Victor will tell you that it was never his intention. Rather, his goal is just to be truthful as a musician. Inside Music Cast welcomes Victor Wooten. Hey Victor, thanks for joining us today.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Good. Hey, Victor.
2: uh, We actually had three introductions that we were going to choose from as we were thinking, okay, we get Victor Wooten on the show. Okay, so the first introduction that we had, okay, to choose from, it was this one. Welcome,
0: Victor Wooten, son of Dorothy and Pete, youngest brother of Reggie, Roy, Rudy, and Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then we also decided to try this one. Uh, welcome three-time Bass Player Magazine Bass Player of the Year and renowned musician and multi-instrumentalist, Victor Wooten. Right. But the third
2: one that we actually chose, and uh, and I think you might like this too, is well, I found this one. It, it goes like this. Uh, known as one of the most influential bassists since Jaco Pastorius, Victor Wooten is known for his solo recordings and tours, and as a member of the Grammy-winning supergroup Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. He's an innovator on a bass guitar, as well as a talented composer, arranguist. Ranger, producer vocalist multi instrumentalist and simply one of the finest people out there
0: and that's the one we chose but you know what you forgot you forgot author
2: exactly <laughs> i need to, and author <laughs> you know do you know Makes where we found good well you know where we found that intro and, and this is sort of cool we found that at the fodera webs guitar website because vinny and joey that's what they have uh, as a descriptor for victor wooten
1: oh wow Cool. I didn't
2: know that. Yeah. it was. Uh, you've been working with those guys for for a while, huh? Oh,
1: man, yeah, since 1983.
2: My wow. goodness, with your yin-yang basses. I mean, you you basically endorse a, quite a, an arsenal of basses, but uh, um, those guys have been uh, producing beautiful instruments to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, for a long time. And it's kind of cool because, you know, we both met when we nobody really knew who we were.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, Faderos, their first year making basses, mm-hmm. right? you know, they aren't they weren't the fiddler that they are now and you know i wasn't the the Victor Wooten that people know me as now you know right so it was it was a very very cool meeting because we we stuck together cuz we liked each other
2: Man, what a what an amazing instrument what a, what a what a tool that they give you it's so well yeah, made yeah it's
1: like the, you know the stradivarius on the bass
2: yeah
0: you know my my first Victor Wooten experience was with the flectones back at the uh, the Vogue Theater in Indianapolis uh, back in 1993 and, you know, I, at the time I'd never seen you guys perform before, but, you, you know, I was just enamored with your overall skill in, in musicality on the bass. Mm. And, but as the show progressed, I couldn't help but to realize just how – just how synergistic the entire band is. I mean, mm-hmm. your brother Roy filled us in a while back. We had him on the show about a year and a half ago. Cool. He, he filled us in on how you all met in Nashville back in the late 80s. But uh, when you first sat down with Bela, you know, just I'm just going back to you. The first time you guys met in Nashville, uh, for your first jam, did you, did you immediately know that there was something magical happening between you?
1: Definitely. I mean, e- even if I wasn't playing with Bela, I knew there was something magic because hmm. he's, he's just um, yeah. magic. Musician person, mm-hmm. but when we sat down to play, uh, it was it was just easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like sitting down and talking with a compatible person, having a talk, you know, a conversation. Mm-hmm. Musically, it was the same thing. Bailey and I just sat down in his kitchen and just played for a couple of hours. Yeah, now, it was very very cool cause just it was so easy, like we had done it, you know, many times before. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I didn't expect anything to come of it. You know, not not like what we're doing right now. You know, twenty something years
0: later. Well, that was the magic. I mean, you guys got together and and it just exploded. You guys became one of the. Uh, you know, I want to. Sometimes I want to say jazz. Sometimes you want to say bluegrass. I guess you could call it newgrass or whatever you, your genre was. It was kind of a genre unto itself because of the, you yeah. know, the style of music you guys were playing was something that. You know, people hadn't really heard before. It was such yeah. an interesting fusion of sounds and, and ideas,
1: right? And, and that's the beautiful thing of it is that you, it's hard to give it a name, mm-hmm. um, and so the music stays broad. A lot of times, you give something a name, it kind of confines it, right? Um, but the Flectones' music definitely goes outside of any of those boxes, mm-hmm. and, and it's because of our, our, you know. Diverse and unique backgrounds that made up the original Flectone. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: But the band at that time, you know, with Howard Levy playing harmonica
3: right. and keyboards
1: and then Bela and then my brother Roy was playing, you know, the, the crazy electronic drum thing. Uh, you know, I'm the most normal part of the band. <laughs> that's true. That's, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's like a scary thought. But the interesting thing, too, that, that you can't deny anyone who sees that band, especially. In the, you know, the 90s, early 90s, anyone who saw that band, yeah. you didn't have to understand or even appreciate the music, but you knew that something special was going
0: on. Oh, without a doubt, yeah.
1: People hey. would just, you know, I heard many stories of people either turning, you know, the channel on the TV or the radio dial and just hearing that sound and saying, wait a minute, what is that? Right. You know, because the sound was so different, you know, and and the look was different. And at that time, we actually got some some nationwide attention. You know, VH1, right? The Music Channel was a, very, a brand new station, and at that time, their focus was on new, exciting bands. Mm-hmm. They were trying not to do the normal thing uh, of just playing the hits. Right. Yeah. So we had, you know, we had our own little special, hour long special that we got to choose.
0: I remember that on
1: videos. Yeah. We did the Tonight Show five times.
0: That's right. I remember seeing her on the Tonight Show three
1: times with Johnny, uh huh, and twice (laughs) with Jay Leno, which is unbelievable. It is.
0: is. That's that's. We did the Arsenio
1: Hall show at the time. We uh, did a tour's opening for uh, the vocal group Take Six, as well as the the you know rock group Chicago, right. You know, and this was a, as a new band so we were very very fortunate to get to do some things we opened a show in 1990 going into 91 uh, for the Grateful Dead a New Year's Eve show
0: that's right that's right
1: and we did a few shows as uh, on, on tour on stage with the Jerry Garcia band
0: uh-huh.
1: and it was just amazing what we were able to do as a new strange band that no one could really put their <laughs> finger
3: on <laughs>
0: I'm glad you brought up uh, the dead and Jerry Garcia, because one of the things uh, I think at one point we we're talking about labeling a minute ago and you, you hate to label anybody, but you did sort of fall into that jam band sort of uh, yeah. moniker. And, you know, when when Jerry Garcia passed away and, and the dead sort of, you know, you know, folded and, and drifted away. You, you guys continued. Uh, to, obviously, you were touring, but a lot of those fans who caught you with those dead shows and, and knew that you were perpetual tourers, you know, where they were following you around everywhere, too.
1: Absolutely. It was a blessing for us to yeah. to get welcomed into that that uh, arena of mm-hmm. jam band fans who are very, very loyal.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah without a doubt.
1: <laughs> and, uh, you know, the few shows we did with the Jerry Garcia band, as well as that huge uh, New Year show at the Oakland Coliseum with the Dead, mm-hmm. uh, was amazing. Because when, when Jerry Garcia passed, um, those fans... Went elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, of course they still love the dead, but then you had bands like Fish.
3: Yeah, right, and the right. Dave
1: Matthews' band. Right. And then you had all these jam band festivals. Well, the Flectones were welcome into those places also. We got a chance to open for Fish quite a bit, as well as Dave Matthews' band. Yeah. And so uh, our fan base grew. Our, yeah, yeah. our jam band fan base continued to grow mm-hmm. uh, because of that original association with with uh, Jerry Garcia and the Dead. But another cool thing about it is that when we first started, we already had Baylor's Bluegrass fans. Right. And a lot of them didn't know what to think about us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They loved Baylor, but weren't quite sure about the band. But, you know, most of them stuck with us and grew to love it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so with those fans, uh, Howard, you know, had some fans. And all of that, combined with the jam band mm-hmm. thing, that's really allowed us to, to uh, you know, exist for over 20 years. And then we eased our way into being accepted by the jazz fans.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, we do have fans from all around the board, mm-hmm. which is kind of rare, uh, but very, very fortunate for us
2: but you know that sort of addresses one thing that just the level of musicianship uh, I mean is is actually remarkable and I think just just the advent of having the different let's say following you know for the bluegrass and the jazz and the fusion or whatever I mean here you have such an incredible eclectic mix of people following you wondering what are they going to do next and I think yeah. that that's a real compliment just to you guys that you can address you know the jazz, if for especially the the jazz audience that's a tough one to crack you know right it really is um, but uh, compliments to you guys that you guys got all these uh, fan base uh, in one bowl and you mixed it up you know
1: yeah it's amazing for us yeah. I, I had no idea that the band you know 21 or 22 years later would still be doing it mm-hmm. and uh, and like you say yeah the jazz world is a hard one to crack but again the one thing about the band that you can't deny is the the level of competency of the musicians that that mm-hmm. you know make up the band yeah. you know when you when you listen to Baylor play the banjo again, you don't have to like the music, but you know that this guy is yeah. at the top of his field. Yeah, definitely. You know, the same the same with the rest of the band, and uh, and in the jazz world, uh, they the the jazz fans appreciate that level of musicianship. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, at first, you know the people who didn't like jazz because you know maybe there's a banjo in it, and it may have a little twang to it. You know, after a while, (laughs) uh, they just kind of have to give in to say, "Wow, okay, this is this is cool." You know, and then we got a chance over the years to work with a lot of great jazz legends. Right, people like you know Chick Corea. Mm -hmm. You know, we we did a one show where we got to play with Clark Terry, and wow, you know, I got a chance to work with Ray Brown and a bunch of different people like that. (laughs) And so, after a while, you know, we just get welcomed into all of these different arenas, and it's it's a beautiful thing
0: yeah you know i you guys aren't as the Flectones, you're not touring as as much as you did back in the nineties, but I'm curious to know i honestly I haven't seen you through Indianapolis in a while. you were here for the jazz festival a while back, but I haven't seen you here in a while but um uh, I'm dying to catch a show. I know you're going to, You're out with the Flectones now, right. and I'm thinking about traveling up to Michigan here soon to see you. But uh, what, what kinds of? I, you know, I remember back in the '90s. You know, um, I remember each 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 time I'd see you every year when you guys had. You know, you really sort of you would take the music that was current. Like if you were doing three. Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you guys would take that, uh, and, and, and that, was, you know, that was your main focus. And as you, as you guys progressed, you sort of left that music behind when it came to performing. You really sort of looked forward, and you right. didn't really take a lot of that music that you had from the past back in your shows. Are you filtering more of the, the older material back into your shows now?
1: Well, at, at, at the moment, No. Um, we just finished a two-week tour with the original Flectones. Right, right. Howard right. was back with us. That uh, was all old
0: music. Uh, I wish I could have seen that.
1: Yeah, that was, <laughs> I mean, that was a thing to see and, mm-hmm. and hear. We uh. hadn't toured with Howard in 17 years since the right, right. year okay. 92. So it was great for us and the, the few fans that got to see it. We, did, we didn't do many U.S. shows, uh, but that only means that we're going to have to do it again.
0: Good. Because uh, it was so much fun. Good.
1: <laughs> and a challenge, too, just relearning all of it.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I would love so, uh, it. Would...
1: Some songs that we had started to try to learn, like just the song UFO Tofu. Palindrome. Which uh, is a crazy song that goes forwards and backwards. Palindrome, yeah. Palindrome. Palindrome. Mm-hmm. to try to learn that. And then we were like, well, (laughs) we want to put in the time to try to remember.
2: (laughs) Maybe next year. Maybe next time.
1: (laughs) But right now, we are currently traveling um, playing some of the holiday music that we recorded on on the CD, Jingle All the Way.
3: Yeah, that came out last
1: year, right? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. And to me, this is some of the most creative music that we've done. Yeah. uh, And I think the fans like it because... When, you know, if the Flecktones play in the time signature of 17.8 uh-huh. or 11.8 or whatever,
0: uh-huh.
1: and it's original music, it's one thing.
0: But then when you but, have to adapt.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> when, we, when we take music that is familiar to an audience uh-huh. and we twist it up, that's when a normal person <laughs> can understand the creativity oh, or yeah, that the exactly. band is, has been doing forever.
0: That's a good point.
1: So, you know, we do the 12 Days of Christmas, and we do it in 12 different time signatures and 12 <laughs> different keys. <teams. laughs> you know, the normal person can say, oh, wow, you know, there's yeah, something going absolutely. on. Where if we were to do that with our own song,
3: uh-huh. it
1: wouldn't mean it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So we're, we're having a blast. The fans are loving it because they're hearing these normal melodies. And, right. And, but it's,
2: it's just being twisted inside and out. You're pushing the audience with their own material. Exactly.
0: Yeah. We interviewed we interviewed Jeff Coffin last year too, and he was telling us about you know the uh, the holiday album, and he goes, "You're going to love this. It's going to blow you away." And <laughs> yeah. He was right. It did. It was it great. was really
1: cool. <laughs> yeah, but one of the the best things for me about this tour is that we have this group called A Lash, and they're on the Christmas CD. But they are a group, a quartet from Tuva.
0: Right, the the throat singers. And
1: they're the throat
3: singers. Oh, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah.
1: So they're doing maybe thirteen of the seventeen dates on this tour uh-huh so they'll be on most of it so hopefully if you come to see us uh they'll be there i'm going it, to try it's
0: amazing yeah i'd love to I'd love to see that <laughs> I think I saw a show once where you had uh what was his name con yes yes and he's yeah, well
1: a... these are his students okay, his proteges, and I think one of the one of the people in the Spanalash alash may be his nephew or something like
0: that, okay. Well, tell you what, we're going to actually break away from some Bela Fleck talk, and we're and we're going to uh, go into uh, let's go back for a little while. You know, yeah. you began playing the bass at, at only three years old. Actually, maybe two years old. Along yeah, with somewhere
1: <laughs> around two or three
0: years. <laughs> that's unfathomable. But anyway, that's along with your older brother Reggie. He was a bass player as well, and uh, your entire family, you know, had a musical vibe, and it, and. Uh, it was inherent with, with all of you. And tell me about the, the Wooten Brothers Band, when, when you first joined at age five, and what kind of kinds of tunes were you guys laying down? I mean, what were you playing at age five? <laughs>
1: yeah, um, whatever was on the radio for yeah. us at the time,
0: uh-huh.
1: you know, which was some gospel music, mm-hmm. you know, James Brown, Sly Stone, definitely whatever was happening in Motown in the late 60s. Uh-huh. Uh huh. We were playing all of that. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, on the radio at that time in the 60s, uh, you'd hear everything on one station.
2: That's right, so yeah, you'd, that's you'd, true. You'd hear
1: some rock music, you know, you'd hear Yes, and then you know you might hear uh, James Brown or something. Mm-hmm. And so we were playing all of that. And then we would also have to learn songs depending on where we were playing, whether it was a wedding or whatever. Right. Or whatever was current mm-hmm. at the time. But we played a lot of music for people to dance to. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of soul music, a lot of R&B. And I, and just to clarify one thing, Reggie, my brother Reggie, was not really a bass player. He just taught me to play.
3: Oh, okay, all right. He's a
1: guitar player,
3: uh-huh.
1: and he taught me to play bass, and also taught my brother Joseph to play keyboards. Wow! But he just knew that we needed it, and we were very young. So if I was three, Joseph was six, <laughs> and Reggie would have been what? If I, Reggie's eight years older than me, so you know, if I was five, he was only fourteen or thirteen or so. And so he would just figure out what we needed and, uh, and, and teach us how to do it. So he was learning and teaching at the same
0: time. I think I read a story about how one of your brothers uh, made you uh, learn how to play a fiddle.
1: Yeah, actually it was Roy. Was it Roy? It was, uh, this was in the 80s.
0: Oh, because oh, that was later on because uh, you guys were trying to get a gig at, at a, an amusement park of some sort.
1: Well, well yeah, here <laughs> was the thing is that the, the, the short story is um, a friend of ours was working there. And then they needed another drummer for this German show.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: he uh, got Roy a gig there. So Roy was wearing the shorts, you know, the lederhosen and all that, <laughs> playing German music. And then uh, all of a sudden they needed uh, an accordion player. Uh-huh. and uh, But they needed one quickly. And okay. so Roy said, whatever we'll brother that plays keyboards, he could probably play accordion. Mm-hmm. And so he got Joe a gig, and they had Joe come in and audition, and he, he had a little, like, you know, two or three-octave Casio keyboard, and he turned it vertical and played it, you know, on its side and played the parts. And they said, wow, well, if you can get an accordion, you know, you've got the gig. So Same thing. he looked in the paper, found a used accordion, and he went to the rehearsal, like, the next night and started the show the next day. So they were calling Joseph wow. the overnight accordion player. And then they, they, uh, Roy also found out that they needed a still guitar player.
3: Mm-hmm. so
1: they said well my brother Reggie plays guitar he could probably still." so Reggie got hired as a steel guitar player and all of a sudden there were you know three Wooten brothers there
2: uh-huh. in their leading uh-huh. hosens
1: <laughs> what's that?
2: in their leaded hosens yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so then Roy found out they needed a, a bluegrass fiddle player uh-huh. and he said well you know I have a brother another brother could probably do that and they said oh, wow okay cool we'll hire him because you know he had Every time he said that, he was right. So they hired me kind of sight unseen
3: uh-huh.
1: and Roy called me up and said, Man, you you know, I got you a gig playing fiddle, bluegrass, you think you can do it? I said, Well sure. <laughs> so I went to my high school and borrowed a violin from the orchestra. Yeah. And started learning, you know, some of the classic fiddle pieces like Orange Blossom Special.
0: Right, right. And
1: uh, became a... uh,
0: Not an easy piece to play.
1: Oh, you know what? (laughs) Actually, Reggie, that's right. I remember now at Bush Gardens, I was actually too young to be in the the live entertainment department. Reggie (laughs) got hired as a bass player. That's what it was. Okay. Reggie got hired as the bass player. I got hired as a fiddle player. Okay. And then when they found out that they actually needed a still guitar player... Uh, Reggie moved over to that position, <laughs> which left the bass position open for me. So I ended gotcha. up playing bass and fiddle after a while.
2: Wow. Uh, I got
1: uh, got the bass chair
2: off. At <laughs> Bush Gardens.
1: And yeah, Bush Gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia. Wow. Like <laughs> so I worked there from 81 until 87, on and off. Wow. You know, sometimes I just do weekends, and might have been one year where I didn't work at all. But that's where my whole awareness of Bela Flack and the bluegrass world and those amazing musicians that live in that world—that's where that came from. And so, you know, I, I think I thank goodness that I was able to, to, you know, live that part of my life, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. was totally new for me
3: mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. whole
1: country bluegrass world. Yeah. At an amusement park where they didn't want you to improvise, you have to play the show the same every time.
2: Uh, yeah. You know, we spoke to your brother Roy in the past uh, interview a little while back, and he mentioned that your house was always filled with music, day in and out. And definitely. and uh, obviously, you're the youngest of the five brothers, so I'd like to think that there was an advantage, right, <laughs> to being the oh, youngest.
1: Definitely, because things trickle down <laughs> yeah. uh, to to the younger siblings. I can literally remember getting off the school bus and walking to my house and hearing music as I was coming up the street. Really? And I would just say, well, I wonder who's here today. You know? <laughs> Because our garage in Virginia was the central place where musicians would always gravitate to Right, right. And uh, so, so, you know, some of the members of the Dave Matthews Band.
0: Yeah, that's right. And bass that's
1: player, right. O'Till Berbers, right now, who's with the Almond Brothers, and a bunch of other great musicians, they'd always come to the house. So I'd, I'd go in and just see who was there, and I'd sit around and listen, and then I'd join in. Yeah. And I was just the perfect, the most perfect learning Environment.
2: Oh, no mm-hmm. kidding. When you were six uh, years old, you and your brothers opened for Curtis Mayfield?
1: That's correct, yeah. We did a tour as the opening band. Wow. That was a great experience. Oh, it had to be. I
2: yeah. can
1: remember you know, bits and pieces of it. But one of the things that we, we really learned from Curtis Mayfield, and I didn't pay attention to it until my brothers really started talking about, yeah. was uh, the subtlety of dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever I really listened to Curtis Mayfield, I noticed that he always plays very gentle and very quiet at a soft volume, yeah. but it's intense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it keeps you sitting on the edge of your, of your seat.
3: You mm-hmm.
1: Know? Mm-hmm. And where, you know, before that, you know, we, we just came from a place of just kind of powerhouse playing, playing with a lot of energy and loud and yeah, yeah. things like that. And, you know, from that tour, hearing how Curtis could work the audience at a quiet volume,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, it was a, another learning experience.
3: Interesting.
0: Well, speaking of the Wooten Brothers Band, I, I think I saw on your website, if I'm not wrong, the, that you guys are, are doing some shows in California sometime in January. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people mistake it for being all of us brothers, but it'll only be three of
0: us. Oh, okay.
1: It'll be me, Reggie, and Joseph. Reggie okay. guitar, Joseph on keyboards, and then a great drummer named Darika Watson. Uh huh. So we'll be doing some quartet shows in, in January and possibly throughout the year.
0: But those guys also play regular gigs in Nashville, right? Like on Wednesday nights at Third and Lindsley.
1: Yeah, yeah. Reggie and Rudy, my brother Rudy, that plays sax. Uh-huh. They are there almost every Wednesday. Um, you know, unless I take take them out of town for some, or they have to leave town for some other reason. But they do have a, a regular gig at a place called Third and Lindsley. Right, and that's the also the address, and it's just downtown on Third Avenue. And uh, it's a jam. You know, they've been doing it for years and years. Yeah. And It's it's a fun place to be on a Wednesday night.
0: Well, we're gonna have to make it down there. We're not too far away. Um, Definitely. Eddie and I went down there last uh, December. We went to a a benefit concert for another guy we've had on the show, another bassist by the name of Chris Kent. Do you know Chris? Yeah,
1: of course I know Chris. I knew about that benefit and and couldn't make
0: that. He's a good guy. Yeah, Yeah, he's very good.
1: He is great guy. A wonderful player. Hmm.
0: influenced by some really great uh, bases. you know Stanley Clark, Larry Graham, uh, Bootsy Collins, to name a few. Um, and, but not to mention your, your your parents and your brothers were also huge influences. But I want to focus on uh, these three particular bases, you know Clark, Graham, and Collins. And and if and just you know kind of shortly, what was it about each of these guys that intrigued you, and what was it about each of their styles that you know you absorbed into your own style?
1: Sure. Well. Being a, a James Brown fan early on,
0: mm-hmm.
1: early '70s, and my parents actually taking the five of us boys to go see them early on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course I became a fan of that bass playing, you know, and and one of the main bass players of that time was Bootsy Collins, right? And you know, so to see this, you know, tall, skinny guy with a fro <laughs> just grooving on the bass, and then I find out that his brother's playing guitar hmm You know, catfish. And yeah. so, you know, that brother connection really grabbed my attention. Um, but we were learning those songs and that was kind of a start for me to really, you know, start paying attention to who musicians were. Right. By name. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Bootsy kind of gave James Brown a different sound. You know, he he added the, the bounciness that you you know, the bass lines that you might hear in Sex
3: Machine. Sure.
1: Um different types of different type of bass playing. Mm-hmm. That that band and the combination of Bootsy and Catfish, what they brought to James Brown was was very different sound, and it was, it was a sound that my brothers, you know, uh, would would make sure I was aware of, mm-hmm. and so I really got into Bootsy's playing, and of course, you know, later on too when he when he connected with Parliament and all of that, mm-hmm. you know? but um, Larry Graham was my introduction to, to what we now call slapping.
3: You know, we, right, in,
1: sure. In my early days, we called it thumping. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was just a totally new sound. That was just, you know, funkier than anything. right? And so, of course, I had to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and Reggie uh, helped me you know, learn that, and that's where, where my technique kind of came about, mm-hmm. was through, through Reggie showing me how to use my thumb the same way he uses his guitar pick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always been young and small, and I remember trying to learn this one Larry Graham song where Larry Graham would just bounce on one note. Mm -hmm. And on certain songs, like Everyday People, he would play one note the whole song, (laughs) (laughs) which is, you know, unheard of. But for me, I didn't really have the stamina to do that for a whole song. So Reggie showed me instead of just bouncing down with my thumb, I could use it in both directions. I could go down and up and mm-hmm. use half the motion, mm-hmm. to get the same thing. Wow, that's cool. And uh, and so that whole thing of you know trying to imitate Larry Graham, but not quite being good enough for it, you know, caused me to ho- develop a whole other technique. You know, with the help of my brother Reggie. Mm-hmm. But Larry Graham was kind of my introduction to what I might call like you know like power playing. I mean, with finesse, but attacking the instrument, yeah. Yeah. you know, thumbing and snapping that string, just amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, his his own band, the, uh, Graham Central Station, uh, that was just the funkiest band at <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that time with his singing, and, and it was the first time in my mind that the bass player was fronting the band.
0: Yeah, yeah that's actually that's, that's a good point you know,
1: not just playing but singing writing the song yeah i mean i mean a number one hit with one in a million you yeah.
2: I mean, yeah it was
1: amazing
2: yeah mm-hmm. not many people do that you, I, no, I mean i, I can't no. name I mean, many you know, bases Bucci, that do that yeah Bucci
1: came along later and had his band uh, you know as well as a bunch of us later on but larry graham was really one of the first
2: sting sting that's about it <laughs> yeah that's yeah it. but that
1: came later also yeah but yeah. you're right you know yeah, I mean, Sting was with the police at that time. Right. Later on, you know, he fronted the band. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then when when this fusion group Return to Forever hit the scene, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, Stanley Clark, mm-hmm. you know, I had never heard a bass player play with this kind of fire.
0: So. Oh, yeah, he's amazing.
1: <laughs> Rapid fire notes with his fingers. And just to hear, you know, a bass player actually playing lines now, melodic lines, uh-huh. you know, where a lot of our thumping things that, you know, we were we were just doing them in one key and, you know, usually in the key of E. But, and Stanley came using all of this in a jazz sense, mm-hmm. using his thumb, fire, you know, just fire under his fingers, mm-hmm. but playing complicated music. Right. And so my brothers and I just went head first into that. And at this time now, uh, Reggie wasn't teaching me my parts anymore. Mm-hmm. So to learn Stanley's lines and Stanley's solos, you know, I had to put on the LP, put the needle on the record and use my ear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, you know, I credit Stanley with helping my ear get really good because trying to decipher all that stuff he was doing yeah. was almost impossible.
0: Yeah. You can and almost... then after
1: that, Jocko showed up <laughs> and just opened up a whole other world for me.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, in, in my opinion, what you've done with the bass in the span of the last twenty years is is similar to what a player like Jocko did with, with the bass when, you know, he was with us. That being you know, you you've really you've reinvented in a way how the instrument is played and you know, your style of communication that you deliver uh with the bass, you know, connected with me like, like no other bassist has before. But when when you take the when you take the stage or when you're in the studio uh, what is it you ultimately want to convey musically? I, I'm sure it's it's different with every composition, but is there a common ideology you have when you pick up the bass?
1: Well, sure. Um, uh, main thing I want to do is just kind of—if this makes any sense—I I want to just be truthful, right? And just give people parts of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, it's like I'm not trying to, you know, play like anyone else. Yeah. I'm not trying to put up a facade. You know, like there's you know some bands who who do wonderful things, and I'm not knocking any of it, but you know some bands will create an icon mm-hmm. you know where you might paint your hair orange or you'll always wear this one thing or, or you know or you'll play naked you know and mm-hmm. cover yourself with the instrument or whatever you know something that grabs people's attention. Mm-hmm. I'm into all of that, but that's not my my path right you know um I want people to hear my music and know exactly who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the audience that I build, you know, they're there for a truthful reason. You know? mm-hmm, yeah. They, we won't meet each other, and then they find out, wow, this is not who I'm listening to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm just being truthful. Basically, I'm not trying to do something new on the bass. I'm not trying to invent anything. I'm definitely just playing what I hear. Mm-hmm. And when I hear something, usually I have to figure out how to play it. And a lot of the times that causes me to create something that I've never seen done on the bass before.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Like, when I hear music, because I grew up within a band, uh, when I hear music in my head, I don't just hear the bass part. So when I'm playing by myself, I don't just play the bass part. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to play the drums and the keys and the melody, as well as the bass part. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so, you know, in spending a lot of time just practicing by myself, that, way of playing just crept its way in and it's not something that I said man I'm going to do something new You know, yeah. Stanley did it Jaco did it now what am I going to do right. I never thought of it that way mm-hmm. yeah. you know things just kind of happen and here I am now being credited with a lot of new things on the bass which was not my intention. I just want to make good music.
2: You know, you mentioned that you, know, you, you hear it all together in your head. Take us a little bit through the writing process of your solo work. Do you hear it as you want it to sound in your head? Do you rough track this thing? Do you sequence the bits and pieces, put it together later? How typically do you uh, compose your music?
1: Yeah, it, it, there's, a, there's different processes. And, uh, and the process is usually, well, they can be the same too, but mm-hmm. sometimes they're different if it's a new song that I'm writing or if I'm covering somebody else's song. Like I did a cover of Stevie Wonder's song, Overjoyed, yeah, on my yeah. very first CD.
2: Right. right, very nice, by the way. Very and
1: nice. thank you. Well, I kind of already know that I can't create a song better than Stevie's version. <laughs>
3: um,
1: so, But I also know that playing it as a solo bass piece, it's going to be different. I don't have to do anything different with it. It's already different, so I don't have to change the arrangement, you know? Yeah. So I just listen to his version mm-hmm. and, and you know, and learn his chords and, and the melody, understand what the lyrics are talking about, and then try to figure out a way to play it. You mm-hmm. know, I can't play the whole thing when I only have four strings. <laughs> so I usually start with the melody and the bass line. Mm-hmm. I'll play the melody and then I'll figure out what's the bass note, what is the root under that? Yeah. And then I'll just play the root as with a piece of the melody and then I'll fill in the middle. You know, and a lot of times I have two more strings that I can kind of fill in a <laughs> chord with. Yeah. Uh, and if I do it in the right way and I allow the melody to ring as I bring in the chords, it allow, it makes the instrument sound bigger.
2: Jordan broke through in, the early, in in you know with uh coming onto the scene and uh, the fretboard tapping and that type of thing. What did you think about that?
1: Blew me away. Yeah. I can remember when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. Someone told me this was one person and at first I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I had listened closer and I could hear it. Oh yeah, that is one person. Yeah. And so that day I made a cassette of my friend's uh record and uh, and I, I picked one song, which was just a blues, mm-hmm. and I got one of my brother's extra guitars. And I um, I tuned it in all fours because some kind of way. I don't know if it set it on the record or what, but I knew he tuned in all fours. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I learned one of his songs that night. Really? Uh. Yeah. I just stayed up until I did it. It was probably daylight before I stopped. Wow. <laughs> but I just kept going until I knew that song from beginning to end. Wow, yeah. Cool. And believe it or not, that was the extent of my practicing of tapping wow once I learned that song, I was pretty good, yeah, you know, and there was nothing else to to learn. Mm-hmm. I just had to start using it and get better at it,
2: yeah, yeah. when I picked up the album, I remember i, cu- I couldn 't stop listening to the record i couldn 't it was just so it just left my jaw on the ground and <laughs> and just just with thinking. God this guy's playing melodic lines, the rhythm line the I mean everything was coming out of one instrument I'm like, this is freaky man, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really did I remember yeah. that, and uh let me move on a little bit uh, your two thousand and eight release uh Palm mystery great body of work it takes us from funk fusion to jazz and even dabble in gospel <laughs> uh, it is a really a mystery to in reality of one what one uh, would expect uh, to hear in a project like this, but uh because it's not really clearly predictable, you know? Right. Um Good. The concept of this album, uh, explain it a little bit. Walk us through that.
1: Yeah. Well, exactly that. Um, you know, I, I don't want things to be predictable. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to hear my record and say, well, I've heard that on the last record. So, you know, th- my goal, for one, was, was to continue doing a record that was different from my last. Keep you guessing. Have new, uh, you know, new new things for you to listen to. But I also wanted to do a record that had, you know, some more playing on it, some more jazzier elements. Yeah, right. And, you know, so for that first song, you know, it, it starts out swinging and it, oh, know, yeah. just kind of blowing over, over, you know, the beginning of it. And then the horns come in, which I haven't used much horn section in the past. Uh-huh. So, you know, I just kind of wanted to blend what I knew bass players were wanting from me, as well as add some new elements that I hadn't done before.
0: You, know? oh, you, you chose um, Horace Silver's song "For my father to be on this project and what was it about that composition that that you really uh, that you really dug?
1: It's just a song that I've heard and always loved. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a jazz standard, so a lot of times we go to the jazz club and we'll play that song. Sure, but I always kind of heard it. I loved it as a funk tune. Mm-hmm. You know, as just a, a, a funky thing. So yeah. whenever I got a chance to, you know, to to do the song, you know, back in in the earlier years at a jazz club or something, you know, we would funk it up a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's just kind of always been in the back of my mind, but I'd never recorded it. Yeah, and I just decided to record it, and uh, I just thought it would fit fit well for this record because, it, you know, it's a jazz song. Sure, sure. And mm-hmm. really good playing on it. You know, Carl um, Denson really tore it up on the saxophone.
2: Yeah. You know, typically, I I really personally migrate to favorite tracks on on albums where you sort of skim through, oh, man, I dig this, and you sort of start working um, your way deeper into the project. I really couldn't do that with this project, because the highlights, honestly, I made a list here of the the tracks that were just the highlights. I mean, is it uh, Sifu? Sifu, Sifu, yes. Sifu, The Flex, The Gospel was an amazing track. The Lesson, and even Cambo, I think, takes on such a metamorphosis of rhythms in that uh, I could keep on going on, but I guess the bottom line is I don't don't have a favorite track because I think (laughs) I draw into every track uh, a little differently, you know. Um, But my question is this. Um, On the different uh, tracks, how do you utilize different – do you use one bass, two basses? And what does each track call for as to the style?
1: Sorry, what was the last part? What does each track? What?
2: Yeah, what is what is each track or each composition? What is required as an instrument? I mean, how do you choose your bases for each track? Do you use one? Do you use your yin yang throughout the whole album, or is this? Are you switching from four to six string bass? Uh, what are the requirements of your tools? As, sure. You follow me? Yeah, I do. Okay.
1: Usually, I'm just going to use my four string for because mm-hmm. that's what I'm comfortable with, mm-hmm. and um,
2: that's your mainstay.
1: That's the main, yeah, okay. exactly. Gotcha. And so usually when I'm working out a song, that's the bass that's in my hands, mm-hmm. and that's the bass that ends up being on the record. Yeah. Because I might just start recording it with that uh, that bass in my hands. But sometimes, it, I, I always listen and ask the music what it wants. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, the music will ask for something different, especially if it's a kind of a funkier R&B or a slow ballad. A lot of times a slow ballad will want a bass that goes a little bit lower than a normal E. So I have to play a five string that has a low B on it, uh, which I did on the song, the gospel. I played the fretless, I think, which has a low B and so yeah, yeah. go a little bit lower, mm-hmm. but I allow the song to, you know, to speak to me. I try to listen you know, openly to see what it's asking for. If it's a, uh, if it's a song where I've got to play, uh, a lot on, then it's probably going to be the bass I'm most comfortable on, which is the four-string fretted. Mm-hmm. But a song may ask for fretted. The song may say, man, you know, I need higher notes, so I'll play, you know, either a six-string or my tenor bass, which is just a four-string bass that's strung up a fourth higher. Okay. But I'm really listening to the music. And, uh, and at the same time, I'm listening to the whole album as I'm painting a picture and seeing what colors are needed.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because if I played the main bass on the last four songs that I've recorded, it may be time for a change. Mm-hmm. You know, and So I want to make sure that each record, since there's going to be a lot of bass on it, I don't want your ear to grow tired of that sound. Mm-hmm. So that bass sound yeah. needs to change. And I might even have to bring in keyboard bass. For a song To yeah. add that
2: change Do you ever hesitate From bringing in A synth bass No No
1: No Because see I'm not so much Into the instrument of bass Gotcha Bass is more of a role, I In
2: gotcha. my opinion That's
1: cool It's a role, Not so much Just an instrument that's, I mean that's why A drum has a bass drum Right uh, You know If a keyboard player Or a guitar player Plays a chord There's going to be A bass note in that chord Right Bass is, is a function That uh, fills the music You know Supports the music From the bottom up Right, and I just happen to play an instrument that that covers that role, but if something else covers it better at that moment, right. it could be a tuba, it could be a stand up bass, it could be keyboard bass mm-hmm. um, then I'm open to that.
2: What is the most unique tool that you've used on any recordings?
1: Oh wow um I mean a lot of the times we'll do a bunch of weird things just you know to to create a sound where you might hit, hit the side of a, a, a garbage can yeah. and mic it in a certain way that, that creates the bass drum sound you're looking for. Um, I don't know that I've used this, but I, I picked up two glass flower vases one time, and I picked them up together in the same hand, and the way they vibrated and bounced off of each other gave me the, the most amazing sound. And so I've recorded it, and I don't think I've used it in a project yet, but it's just it's just stored in my library of banks of sound mm-hmm. that will show up somewhere but a, a lot of the times uh weird sounds will show up. I know on my uh the song called "What Did He Say?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. which was on that record. I was listening to it because my new website has some music playing, and,
3: yeah, and really that nice. song was
1: playing, and I recognized I, I had a, a cockatiel at the time named Cherokee, uh-huh. and I could hear Cherokee in the background. <laughs> I remembered. I forgot about it, but yeah, I I recorded him and just stuck him in in various places. So you have this rhythmic bird call in the back. That's great. And I just like sounds because all sounds are musical, you know. On my Yin Yang record, I used my daughter at thirteen months. Yeah, just babbling, and uh, and I learned how to play what she was babbling. Yeah, I played along with her, and (laughs) we added chords and made it sound musical.
2: Right.
1: And so, yeah, some weird things. Find, it, find their way into the music. Yeah,
2: your Grammy-winning, uh, let's talk about this a little bit, uh, your Grammy-nominated Yin Yang uh, project, which was a two-disc project, uh, one instrumental and the other one was geared towards vocals. Great concept. I mean, you had some great players. You had Bootsy, Howard Levy, in fact, we were just talking about him, Kirk Whalum, a good friend of ours and a past guest, and and more. But uh, you used, uh, what is it, uh, you, you were recording the two Roland uh, 1680s, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's
1: true.
2: <laughs> Walk us through the production notes on this baby.
1: Yeah, well, that's the whole record, both CDs and all the effects, And all the mixing was done on two Roland 1680s. Yeah. Um, And it was probably the first, you know, full blown project to be done that way. Yeah. We were actually going to master the project on the 1680s, but their mastering software wasn't completed yet. Uh huh. When they sent it to us, it kept making the system crash. So we had to go into, you know, a real mastering place to master it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I would just show up at, you know, someone's house a lot of times with the 1680 and uh, you know, and plug them in and record and take it back <laughs> home and work on it with my cool. engineer at the time, Kurt Story. Uh-huh. But some of the tracks were done like with the full band, with the drums and keys and all that at the same time. And the 1680, I think, only allowed eight inputs. Mm-hmm. So I had to purchase another one so that we could sync them together just so we could all plug in at the same time.
2: Right, that's interesting.
1: And uh, yeah, actually, the, there's two tracks that Carter Beaufort drummer for Dave Matthews' band, mm-hmm. recorded. We actually filmed the whole recording thing and released a DVD, an instructional DVD about the process. We were in a studio with Carter and Bela and my brother Joseph and a bunch of musicians. And uh, if you if you watch that video closely, you'll see the 1680s right there. Oh, yeah. In LA cool. Yeah.
0: I want to ask you sort of a blunt question here, and it, it is: uh, Do you enjoy you enjoy singing? Right? Do you enjoy it? I, mean, I enjoy it. You, it. you do I, such I a great often, job.
1: I don't often enjoy my voice when I hear it back, but I enjoy singing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot a lot of your material is instrumental, but I think on actually on Paul Mystery there were quite a few tracks that yeah. you know involved a lot of vocals and. Uh, and there's a, there's a few choice of Fleck tunes that you know you did some some vocals on too, but I think you do a great job on vocals.
1: I appreciate it, yeah. I think maybe I did, I've done a little bit with the Fleck tones, but my brother, Roy Futureman, does most of the vocals that we
0: yep. do with the Fleck tones. Right, right.
1: And he has a great
0: voice. Phenomenal voice. Yeah. Well, we've got a question from one of our listeners. This is a guy named Bud Pearson, who happens to be a, a bassist and a, fa- a real big fan of yours. and. He said uh, he, he has a question about Howard Levy, and he says, Tell us about playing along, alongside Howard Levy uh, on the last series of Flextone Dates.
1: Yeah, it was great to be back with Howard again. And it was amazing at how familiar it was for all four of us to be playing together again. Yeah. I mean, it, we just, it was like we just went back you know, 20 years or so.
0: You know, I, but, I saw, oh, go go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Now, I was just going to say, Howard, Howard is a genius. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the truest sense of the word, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've ever met a musician like him with as much knowledge, as much ability. And what most people don't realize is he's playing what we call a blues harp, a blues harmonica. Right. Which is a diatonic instrument that's designed to be easy to play. Mm -hmm. So that if you blow into it, you get a chord. If mm-hmm. you suck air in, you know, the opposite direction, you get a different
3: chord. Right, right.
1: So it's made for all of us to be able to get one, sit around a campfire, and instantly play music. Mm-hmm. So, and b- but because of that, the instrument is was can always considered to be incomplete. In other words, all the notes aren't on the instrument.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: can't play, you know, a full chromatic scale from low to high. That's
0: true. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's what we always thought until Howard came along. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Howard you know he, to use his words he said he loved the instrument so much that he knew it had to be complete mm-hmm. and so some kind of way he figured out where the missing notes are interesting and he came up with a whole new technique of playing that instrument to, to be able to play these notes and it is uncanny it's unbelievable and it's impossible
0: <laughs> not for him <laughs> <laughs> but he
1: can do it yeah,
0: wow
2: that's amazing
1: and so you know when he's playing all this crazy charlie parker like you know harmonica playing it's 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 a little toy instrument you know mm-hmm. and then he he plays the piano you know even better you know and then he's <sighs> playing in unison with the piano mm-hmm but what most people don't know is Howard can play just about any instrument.
3: Wow! Uh-huh.
1: You know he focuses on piano and harmonica, but I've seen him play you know all you know different types of percussion and Chinese, and Asian instruments, and he plays saxophone, bass. I saw him on tour with Kenny Loggins playing mandolin.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: plays anything.
0: You just mentioned the Kenny Loggins' uh, connection. I, I saw him play with Kenny. Oh, this goes back 15, 16 years ago. But uh, what was great was when Kenny was introducing the band and he introduced Howard, he said he introduced him as the man with two tongues. He right. <laughs> said, ladies, you're going to like this, but here's Howard Levy, the man with two t- <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. That makes complete sense. Yeah, we used to call him the man with two brains. <laughs> yeah, and Eddie... he's, he's phenomenal, and, and he knows so much about music. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always pick his brain whenever I'm with him. I had him write me out just some, just some you know, musical concepts and things to practice on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have a, a sheet of paper with his handwritten notes that I've got with me right now that I'm still working on. Jeez. But he's just a fascinating person and just unbelievable musician.
0: We, Eddie, we need to get him on the show. Absolutely. <laughs> we need a contact there. Yeah, just
1: be prepared to have your minds
2: blown. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen! In 2008, you joined Stanley Clark, Marcus Miller, of course, and yourself, uh, and you formed SMV, which is a jeez, a supergroup, uh, you know, bass supergroup formed, and uh, where you get three amazing basses together. This was yours. This was your crazy idea, wasn't it?
1: Well, yeah, it, <laughs> it was actually. Um, it was something that I had approached both of them individually with, mm-hmm. probably seven years, six or seven years before it happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd go see them play and and see what had happened is I had seen this great guitar trio with uh, Paco de Lucia, Al Demiola, and John McLaughlin. Okay. And I thought, man, (laughs) I'd love to do something like that. Yeah. You know, because whenever I see something that just blows me away, I want to do it. (laughs) Right. No matter what it is, it could be a circus act or whatever. (laughs) And so anyway, you know, I, I started thinking of two people I'd love to do it with, and it was Stanley and Marcus. And so individually, years ago, you know, I'd go see them play and talking to them backstage. I just dropped this little hit, you know, man, we should, three of us should do something. But it it wasn't until a few years ago when Bass Player Magazine had this show, and they asked Marcus and me to present Stanley Clark with the Lifetime Achievement Award. Okay. And so we got up there and said some nice things about Stanley and gave him this award. And uh, and they had arranged it that we would join Stanley on stage to play school days. Wow. You know, his big bass hit. Right. And once we did that, the three of us knew that okay, <laughs> you know, cool. it's time to really do this for real. This was too much fun.
0: <laughs> I think so I, we, the, we
1: got together recorded a record.
0: And yeah, that was Thunder. To
1: tours. Thunder,
0: so, yes. Yeah. And I think on that album Marcus Miller uh and this is something I didn't know about him, but doesn't he play a bass clarinet, and he plays synthesizer, and, and not only, you know, of course, the bass as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, Marcus uh, pretty much produced that record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, you know, he played clarinet when he was in, in school, grade school. Yeah. And now he focuses mostly on bass clarinet. Mm-hmm. But he plays, yeah, he's a good, Stanley and Marcus are both good piano players.
2: I highly recommend this album. If you if, if our listening audience if you haven't heard S M V, it's it's a, a fantastic uh, body of work and uh, one track that just I have to mention that just jumps out to me is a track called Pendulum and it just leaves me mesmerized and I can only imagine the you know, the recording session and how the vibe was when you guys actually uh tracked that. How did you record that?
1: You know, that song was a jam. Yeah. Mm. What happened? Really? Was it real? Yeah, a complete jam. This girl Named Butterscotch, showed up at the studio, Hmm. and she's like a human beatbox. She does drum, uh,
0: you know, sounds
1: with her voice. But she's very unique that she plays jazz piano, and she also sings lyrics while she's doing the beatbox. Wow! Which I don't get. (laughs) I don't know how she
2: does it. (laughs) What's her name again? Butterscotch. Butterscotch.
1: You can look her up online and on YouTube. Okay. She was actually a finalist in America's Got Talent. Really? Okay. Because she is that good. Oh, but you can oh. find her on YouTube and over the internet, and you can see some of her performances of singing songs like Summertime, Trash oh. Standard. And she's singing the lyrics and doing the drum beat. I don't
0: with get the that. voice. That's unbelievable. Well,
1: she shows up at the studio one day, and she just blows us away. <laughs> and we say, okay, you know, we got to set up a microphone. Right. And we ended up getting her on a couple of tracks. Um, and Pendulum was one of the things. We just got her in the studio, put up a mic, and the three of us just started playing along. Jeez. And that's what came out. It was actually longer than what you hear. Oh,
2: I can we, imagine, yeah.
1: We, we edited it down just to make it, you
2: know. Right. I bet you that groove could have gone on forever, man.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Jeez.
1: Yeah.
2: Stanley and and Marcus, there's a short video that you have on your new website, which we recommend everybody goes to. Um, uh, There's a little clip where you guys are on a bus, I think someplace in the southern of of Spain, okay? And you're going to have to fill us in because I think it's hilarious. You guys get stopped at the border, and your manager gets out to pay off a bribe, okay? (laughs) Tell us about that. That's pretty funny. Well, Well,
1: well, you know, uh, I'll choose my words carefully. You know, <laughs> please I, I do. Had okay, a few please do. <laughs> from Spain kind of upset at me about <laughs> that video. Oh, really? <laughs> but I just turned on the camera and, and uh, you know, and recorded what was happening. <laughs> um, we had German bus drivers right. who were very, very upset. And they just kept us there until they could find something, you know, wrong, you know.
2: This was while you were touring with Stanley and Marcus, correct? We were yeah, we okay, were touring Europe.
1: with S M V and you. we got stopped going into the Basque area of Spain. hmm We were stopped at the border yeah. <laughs> and we were held there for a couple of hours. They they actually, you know, put something under our bus tire so that we couldn't move forward or backwards. my god. Um and they literally, you know, were going to close down the border because I guess it was either time for their break or something. But they were at least acting like they were going to leave and we were just going to be stuck there unless we paid 2,000 euro. What? And, you know, and I, I'm not here to say that they were wrong or they were right, but it appeared like we were just getting the, the shaft. Right. You know, I, of course, I was in the bus. I wasn't outside listening to what right. was going on. They were speaking Spanish, and you know from what our driver bus driver was saying is they they were saying that they couldn't speak any english right. uh you know and, and until they wanted to and uh and so in the end to get through and to get to the gig, we had to come up with two thousand euro
0: interesting, which is around three thousand bucks
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh so it was either you know sit there and and Fight this thing and try to prove our point and and risk missing the gig, right? Or uh, just paying it and going and doing the gig. And I believe what happened is that our our uh, well, we 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 paid at on the spot. We paid the money, but I believe the German bus company. I think they maybe reimbursed SMV, and they were going to take it up with their lawyers and things like that. Yeah, right. Because in the end. The, uh what they were saying was wrong with one of our bus drivers. I think again, I don 't really know what was going on, but i I heard they found something on one of our bus drivers' records you know from two weeks earlier
2: mm, okay so. and he,
1: but he wasn't the driver he was the driver that was actually sleeping so <laughs> and he was saying you know that if you're not driving, if you're off the clock, they're not even supposed to look at your record.
3: Wow, interesting!
1: But they apparently had found something that had happened a couple of weeks earlier that they were allowed to use and say, "Well, you have to pay this fine." Yeah, which didn't make sense to him, from what I understand, because it wasn't in that area, you know, that he was paying a fine for, and it was, you know, weeks earlier, and he wasn't even driving at the moment. <laughs> so, you know, and then he got upset, and then blah 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 blah, and, and I just took the benefit of getting out my phone and recording it and. <laughs>
2: <laughs> in an uh, and at the very end, Stanley gives us a recap on the whole thing. <laughs> so I invite you, everybody, go to MySpace and uh, check out... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, <think laughs> I, 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 think I might have put a warning up there.
1: That there's a few little choice words.
2: Anyway, thanks for clarifying that little trip there. Oh, you know? uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, just to let me know, we had a great gig that night. Cool. I uh, just finished going back to Spain, not that same area, but I always Spain is one of my favorite countries. Yeah. I love going there. But, you know, those are just some of the mishaps. When you travel a lot, everything's yeah. not going to go smooth. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of being on the road. That's the part you don't rehearse for when you're right. trying to make it big.
0: You know? Yeah. Well, I'm holding in my hand your book that was just recently. How, when was it released?
1: Other things. this April coming up will make two years. it make two years, okay. So, Paul Mystery mm-hmm. and the book came out the same day,
0: April okay. 1st. Okay, cool. All right. Well, it's the music lesson, and it's called The Music Lesson, A Spiritual Search for Growth Through Music. And, uh, you know, this this book, I, like I told you before we got started, I, I just received it yesterday. Wow. And uh, I read, it's 273 pages. I read most of it last night. Wow. And uh, the book is fascinating. And I, I, in a nutshell, this book is about a musical, spiritual epiphany that you had uh, during your early years in Nashville, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, I, you know, I, 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 read, I wrote the book and I, and I tell people to approach it as fiction. Mm-hmm. Because the book did not happen exactly as written okay. okay i I took a lot of things if I had to say it, most of the incidents in that book are truthful incidents mm-hmm. but I put them together in a fictional story okay uh to to be able to tell the story in a way that works from beginning to end,
0: sure. You wrote it. I mean, it's, it's you describe it as a, as a novel, which it is. It's yeah. more of a story than it is, yeah. Right. But but without giving too much away, the premise of the of the book or the story is that you have an encounter with someone who literally came into your life one day. He, he walked right into your house, and you described him as having long black hair, a unique face, uh, distinct, but you weren't quite sure where he could have come from. Perhaps mm-hmm. you know a Native American, and you know one distinct feature was that you you mentioned his eyes. He had powerful blue eyes, right. and you even mentioned that his Eyes would change color at any given moment. Exactly, and, and, and uh, his name is Michael, and he proceeds to delve into your musical spirit.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, right. Teaching life through music and, mm-hmm. and music through life, mm-hmm. um, so that the student gets a whole lot more. Well, or, or me. It's so funny, you know. When I wrote this book, it's, it's very, very interesting because the the name Victor for the student. You don't even know that. You don't know who. You know, there's no name given to the student until mm-hmm. the end of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, here I'm sitting here writing this book, and I'm thinking, wow, no one's no one's really gonna think that, that this is me, you know. And I, and then I, you know, I can give this part away. In the end, when you hear this guy's name and it says Victor, people are gonna be so surprised. Yeah. And I, you know, I was sending copies to just a few friends of mine to help, you know, me flesh the book out. And everyone approached the whole book as being me, and I didn't realize that it was gonna come across that way. Well, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm I'm guilty as charged because I did the same thing.
1: Well, everyone does because you're really right. The thing is really based off of my life, you know, mm-hmm. even though I, I took stories from other people mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and put them in there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, the student doesn't really know what he's looking for. Uh, he just knows that he's not doing well musically or with his life. You know, he's, not, he's a pretty good player. Mm-hmm. He knows that, but he's not getting gigs. He can't get studio work. And he's doing all the right things. Right. Practicing his scales and his modes, and but nothing's coming of it. So he's just discouraged and doesn't know what to do. And that's when this strange man, calling himself Michael and claiming to be his teacher, but also claiming that he can teach him nothing,
3: mm-hmm. right, shows right.
1: up at his house. You know, one one day, and that's the start of uh, kind of like a new life for Victor.
0: This is going to change the way I ask the questions now, now that I have an understanding of that. But, you know, for the stranger to walk, you know, into the house so suddenly, you know, they they found themselves unusually at peace with that person, almost as if they were expecting him to come into, you know, in their life and and guide them.
1: Yeah, it's like he didn't know why. It's like I I should have been scared because this guy's with a motorcycle helmet on, a skateboard, Mm -hmm, and he's in my house. You know, I didn't hear the door open. I didn't see him walk in. He's just there. Right. You know, I I opened my eyes and there he's standing there and and I should have been afraid, but it wasn't.
3: Yeah. You know?
1: And then when he starts talking, it's like, you know, I wanted more. Mhm. You know, I didn't I didn't quite understand or know if he's telling the truth, but it's it's intriguing. I want to hear more.
0: But let me ask, is that one of the factual points in the book? I mean, he this person really did walk into your house? N- no. Okay.
1: Yeah, yes and no. This person walked into my life. I see.
0: Yesterday. I see. I see. Uh,
1: My friend Michael is the character in the book. It's it's a little difficult to explain because most of it's true, but it's set up in a scenario that's not. Okay. In other words, I wasn't at my house in Nashville and this stranger appears. Right. But I was in Nashville when I met Michael. Okay. A a friend of mine, his last name is Kot, K-O-T-T. Okay, And I was actually introduced to this guy by another good friend of mine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And and Michael is just like he is in the book. He's a questionable character. Okay, You don't know where to look, whether to believe anything this guy says. Mm-hmm. He's an amazing musician. And you find out, you know, I found out later from my real friend Michael that he's got some kind of amazing degrees and some kind of, you know, very heady stuff, you
3: know. Uh-huh.
1: But he's a character. He's always wearing that blue jumpsuit and he's got his skateboard and his motorcycle helmet, even though he doesn't <laughs> ride a motorcycle. And you know, he'll he'll say something that is is profound and brilliant, but then he'll he'll pick up some, you know, food off the ground and eat it. You know, he'll offer you some first, you know, want some and then he'll eat it and he I've never seen him be sick or tired even. Uh-huh. he's just a strange guy yeah. that keeps you guessing.
0: Yeah, he's a free spirit in the freest sense, you know, ba- based on what I gathered from what yeah. I read. And there was one, I think there was one part in the book where you said he's the kind of guy who uh, would just, you know, in the middle of November take his clothes off and run and dive into somebody's pool.
1: Yeah, now that's true. I mean, that was a real incident. <laughs> I was with him. We went to this friend's apartment uh-huh. complex and, and the pool was locked. I mean, it was a fence around it. It was out of season, and he hopped the fence, he, you know, just took off all of his clothes and hopped in, <laughs> took, you know, took a refreshing swim, got out, put his clothes back on and then joined us at this at this woman's house
3: you know
1: mm-hmm. but there's something about that that I really admire mm-hmm. you know I, I mean, right. I admire that freeness right. where most of us are too pent up, you know we have to guard our our image and you know where he just does stuff if he wants to do it, he does it. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, he brings you along with him, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he frees you up quite a bit just by being in his presence. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I mean, I remember one other incident that I wrote about. I changed the location, but in the story, I think we're on top of the, these mounds or, or we're close to the mounds, we're at the top of this hill overlooking these mounds. And I think it might have been there where he raises his hands up in the air and takes three deep breaths. And I just allude to it, but I remember one of the first meetings I had, we were in a car with Michael, and, uh, and we were driving through Nashville, and at the time, there was this house that had this big teepee in the front yard, mm-hmm. and three of us were riding in the car, my friend Kurt and Michael and I, and we rode by this teepee, and Michael said, oh, man, stop, stop, and we stopped the car, and he hops out of the car, and he runs into this man's yard and just goes inside this big teepee, so we follow him. <laughs> And we walk in, and he's just got his hands up in the air, and his head is up to the heavens, and he's just breathing really deeply, I mean, just audibly loud, and takes these deep breaths like he's just breathing in this manna or something. Then when he's done, we leave. No (laughs) explanation. Uh, And and this is one of my first meetings. Wow. Wow. And I'm thinking, this guy is either really deep or really crazy. (laughs) And I found out that it's both, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, but I've you know I've always hung around him. I learned from him, and he's just the greatest guy,
0: and he's so knowledgeable. I guess, and I'm trying to decipher between you know book and reality. And I don't want to I don't want to dissect the story too much because I want you know whoever has not you know read the book, I want them to be able to have their own perception of you know take from it what they will. But but you claim that you know he was he was with you for only a short time for a few days. But this. You know, this experience changed your life, you know, musically and, and personally. And, and, I mean, is it true? Have you not seen this person since?
1: No. Uh, my friend Michael, I have seen.
0: I see. Okay. I keep
1: in touch with him. He actually, I just finished the audio version of this book. Oh, okay. And Michael actually read the parts. Wow. Oh, cool, of cool. Michael in the book. Good. So he's a person that I keep in with, uh, uh-huh. keep up with. Again, you know, I I tell people to approach the book as fiction, as if you were going to see Star Wars.
3: Right, mm-hmm. okay.
1: You know, you wouldn't question whether Yoda is real or whether <laughs> right. uh, Darth Vader really told Luke that he was his father. You just enjoy the story, yeah, and you learn from it if you choose to.
0: But I have to, I have to admit that as I was reading it, though, and I knew that because that's in your grace note section, right? You, I mean, it's, it's up in the front where you do explain that, but I still, I guess as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, how are these parts applying to Victor Wooten's life? You know, and I'm trying to decipher, you know, what was, what were the elements of this book, what were affecting you?
1: Right. It's so funny. Like I said, uh, you know, when I first wrote the book, I was just trying to, you know, write about this ano- anonymous bass player living in Nashville, but right? right. you know, everyone <laughs> knew it was me right away. You know, they knew it before I really knew. Um, but you know. A lot of people, one of the most questions I get about the book from people is, is, is Michael real? Yeah, right. And my standard answer, I usually get it through email, and my standard answer is, if you were to ask Michael that question, Michael would say a better question is, are you real? Right, right. That's what's important. Yep. You know, and, and so I just say, you know, approach the book as fiction uh, and gain from it as you choose and you know there's a warning right in the front of the book. Yes. Everything in this book may be all wrong. Mm -hmm. But if so, that's all right.
2: (laughs) The track I saw God. Yes. Does that have anything to do with your book? Um
1: (laughs) I would say yes because it, you know, it, it stems from my life. Was I, I wasn't really thinking of the book right. when I wrote the song, right. but, you know, everything kind of melds together because it's all parts of me.
3: I saw God the other day
4: She looked like you, he looked like me Now I'm going to tell you a story And this one you can repeat. I saw God the other day just walking down the street. He said, I have something I want to tell you, something I've been dying to say. You've been waiting for my return. The truth, I I never went away. I don't care if you believe me at all. I know who I saw, and it was God. I said, hold on just a minute. How do I know it's really you? She gave me a simple answer. She said, you don't unless you do. Wait a minute. I don't quite understand all this. Tell me, what do you want with me? You see, I'm not a religious type of person. He said, you don't have to be. I don't know if I'm the right person to talk to. You know a few of my puzzle pieces are missing. And she said,
3: I speak to everyone, but not everyone chooses to listen.
4: Well then, tell me how to treat my enemies. I mean, the people I despise. He said, The answer will be clear when you see me in their eyes. I don't care if you believe me at all. I know who I saw, and it was God. I
3: saw God the other day. like you, look like me. I saw God
1: the other day. like you, you look like me. That song just came out of, you know, my own thinking about life and religion, of course. Right. And seeing, you know, being frustrated sometimes at how people approach religion and how closed uh, some people can appear to be to right. me about religion mm-hmm. you know where in life everything gets changed and everything gets updated you know yeah. we, we tvs and music and cars change you know everything but religion we try to keep it the same mm-hmm. it has to be how it was two thousand years ago and when when life changes you know we just have to flow with it that's, life is changed mm-hmm. you know, that's a good definition to me of life is changed and um, and just the way I see a lot of people looking at religion, and even growing up, you know, learning from my parents and, and reading the Bible, I just, for my own self, saw a lot of holes in that picture. Um, and it's things I've been thinking about for years and have kind of shied away from speaking openly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and on all my records, I'd have some spiritual topics. Song yeah, things. right. But in this song, for the first time, I just kind of decided to be blatant and yeah. open.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah,
1: And not so much to tell people this is the way it is, but to cause people to think for themselves again mm-hmm. and to reevaluate what you think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then just using a male and a female voice or terminology for God rather than always having to be he mm-hmm. or him. Mm-hmm. You know, in the song, it's, it's she.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, you know, and
1: uh, and so for a lot of people, that's a bold statement. <laughs>
0: right, it's true. Which for me,
1: it's like, well, why not?
0: Right, know? exactly.
1: So you know, it ruffled a few feathers, but at least the people that con- most of the people that contact me are saying, "Wow, thank you for that. It's a brilliant song." And, and believe it or not, now you know, I get asked to come and speak at uh, you know preachers' uh, conferences and 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 different things like that, which is really really amazing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm glad that people are open to the song. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, as I was reading the book, especially in the early first few chapters when I was trying to, you know, wrap my head about around the story and what you were saying, um, it, it reminded me, and maybe you've read this before, but it reminded me of a book that I read about 12, 13 years ago, um, a book by Neil Donald Walsh called A Conversation with God.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So have you read that?
1: Oh, yeah, I've read all of his books. Uh, uh-huh. That especially that first book is is, is yes. go down as one of my favorite books in history.
0: Oh, me too. Me too. Without um, a doubt.
1: It was definitely groundbreaking and and went along with a lot of what a, many of us were thinking and either didn't know how to put it into words or were afraid to. Mm-hmm. And in that book where he's it's just question and answer, he's asking God a question and God is answering. Right. It's not so heady. It's You know, he's asking normal questions that you and I want to know. Like, you know, why is chocolate bad for you? You know, how come sex <laughs> is supposed to be bad for you? Would it feel so good? You know, things that we're thinking but are not allowed to talk about. And the, nor- and the questions are understandable. Right, right. And it's really, really amazing. But what is even more amazing to me, and I hope most people will get this from that book, is that we can all do the same thing? Mm-hmm. We can make that same connection. You don't have to call it God. You know, you can call it whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But there is a part of ourselves—call it your subconscious—that knows things that we don't consciously know. Mm-hmm. And so we can sit down with ourselves, quiet our quiet our minds, maybe, and you know, pose a question. Whether you write it or not, pose a question, and then just open. Be mm-hmm. open to the answer. Yeah, And it's amazing.
2: One thing that I appreciated from the song was uh, back, backing away and seeing the big picture of what you're trying to say. It had some really beautiful stuff in there. and A couple of things like, are uh, one message that I really enjoyed that people really need to understand is, hey— uh, the old advent of, hey, if you do it, what is it, the scripture where he says, if you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Right. That type of thing. You're you're basically saying, treat, love your neighbors as, as you love yourself. And you even sure. go as far as to even to say, even about you talk about the enemies. You And, man, you better, you know, yeah. that, that's sort of a scriptural too where it says, hey, you should love your enemies like you do yourself. I mean, they're just, they're human beings too. You follow me? Sure. And you yeah. tap on a bunch yeah. of lies.
1: Although maybe misguided. Correct. Yes. But who's to say? Right. You know. Who's to say? Because, you know, our lives, at least on this plane, you know, our physical lives on Earth are governed by what Einstein called a theory of relativity, Mm -hmm. which means you are what you are only in relationship to what you aren't. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, I'm not black until there's a white person that comes along.
0: That's right. There's there's no daytime unless
1: it gets dark.
0: That's, that's right. right. That's so in right. other words, let's say
1: someone wants to, and I know Neil talks about this in one of his books. It might be a child, a children's book he has called The, the Little Soul and the Sun or something like that. Okay. But the concept is that, let's say you want to be a light unto the earth. You know, you want to bring joy to the world.
3: Mm-hmm. That's
1: right. Well, in this realm that's governed by the theory of relativity, you can't do that unless darkness shows up. Right. You can't be a light. You need darkness to be a light. Right. That's why a flashlight doesn't work too well in the daytime. That's right. It has to get dark. But what happens is we make that statement, man, I'm going to do good. I'm going to be light. And so the darkness shows up, and we curse the darkness. <laughs> and a lot of us, times, we succumb to the darkness, and we forget our original goal mm-hmm. was to be that light. And the darker it gets, the dimmer your light can be. Right. But even just a, you know a match will produce a right. bunch of light if it gets dark enough. That's
2: absolutely true. That's
1: true. So we, But we forget about that. You're right. And we succumb to the darkness. So a lot of people who claim that God is everywhere, if you can't see him in your enemy's eyes, that's yeah. your problem, not your enemy's.
2: Yeah, I remember that little song a long, long time ago, This Little Light of Mine. There you go. Because <laughs> it, it, it only takes a little bit just to make a dark room uh, light up, you know?
1: Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. And when you become that light, yep. you will see it.
2: Mm-hmm. in your whole life. And, you know, one thing that me and Rick sort of agreed on just prior to the interview is, you know, this whole notion of, of music. I, I personally believe, you know, music is a God-given gift, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, which makes it sort of spiritual, right? Music. Absolutely. That, that's Everything. it. Yeah. Because I think it's a gift. Uh, it should be a, a spiritual type of ex- experience. And, you know, I, I just appreciate you, um, you know, coming to the show and, and, and helping us understand how you tie in the music into your own spiritual being and, and, and see it from a different perspective. So, you
0: know, I, I really appreciate you coming on
2: and doing that. Man.
1: Well, I, I uh, thank you for allowing me the opportunity.
0: You know, one thing, one thing I noticed in, in your book is that whenever the word music was listed, it was capitalized.
1: <laughs> you, you, you noticed
0: that. Yeah, you're, you know, you're, it, in a sense, you know, what I took from it is that you're communicating that music is a parallel to God. Like, you know, absolutely, rest, yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, you know, and a lot of people might be mad about that, but um, I, and, and not even so much as a parallel to God, I'll, I'll take a safer approach. Right, okay. If I were to capitalize my, if I were to write my own name or your name, Mm -hmm. The rule is you capitalize it right? because we are a real entity. Mm -hmm. And so more so to be safer, I'll say I'm looking at music as a real entity.
2: That's nice. That's good.
1: It's a real thing or a person you can communicate with, you can listen to, you can talk to. It already exists. It's not something that we have to create. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But the other thing, too, is in the book, it's only the teacher's. That talk of music with a capital M, right. a student or me, as you might say, mm-hmm. doesn't do that mm-hmm. until
0: a certain point in the book. Well, it was a great book. I, I'm I'm actually going to try to finish it this weekend. I got I got through most of it, and I was, you know, it was it was a thought provoking book, and I really encourage anybody out there who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, after hearing what we've talked about here, I'm sure a lot of people are intrigued. So right. definitely pick that Thank up. Thank you.
1: Well, somewhere on my website, uh, people can read a chapter. Okay. And uh, I will also, in, in the hopes, uh, we're, we're working out the deal for the audio book. Again, I finished the audio version. And uh, we're working out the, uh, the deal to get that out to people. And, uh, but, but my hopes is to soon uh, have a chapter up that you can listen to on my website. Oh, okay. That's and cool. also, just to let you know, the sequel is
0: in the works. Oh, cool. <laughs> right Very cool. Right now. Does Michael return? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, will, I will give that away. Don't tell us no <laughs> not, more. Don't not from the more. beginning. He shows up by
1: surprise.
0: The right. return of Michael. All
2: right. Dun, 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 dun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and to wrap up here, I, you know, I've seen you perform at least a dozen concerts with Bela Fleck and, and, and the Fleck Tones, and, and your feel and communication on stage is unlike, like anything, you know, I've seen before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you were all one when it comes to your musicality. And I, I only have one question alluding to the Flectones here. And how do you and the other guys, you know, Bela, Roy, Jeff, and even Howard, or any of the other guests that you've had, you know, with you in the past, how do they how do they perceive the music? I would assume it's very similar to the same kind of connection that you've learned or that, you know, the, the character in the book learned.
1: If I could speak for them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's like if we or if you and three other people were to sit down and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. You all speak a very similar language. Right. And it's not so much about your instrument, your language. It's more about what are you saying. Mm -hmm. And you don't really pay too much attention to the words. You don't pay any attention to your instrument when you're talking. Right. The conversation is what's important. Mm -hmm. Musically, we approach it the same way. We're just communicating. Uh, The instruments are secondary. And, you know, when you speak your language, when everybody speaks... Their language good enough, and believe it or not it doesn't even have to be the same language, but if you speak your language good enough, you can sit down and converse mm-hmm. in other words you know if I, if i have if if i 'm in french and I don't, if I'm in france and i don't speak French, but I have to find a bathroom you know I can communicate that mm-hmm. or you know, if i'm hungry or whatever there's a way to communicate it because i 'm that good in my language right and so musically we 're doing the same thing mm-hmm. we're just communicating with each other and because we we understand music and that's our that's our subject matter you know we're just speaking music so we don't even have to have a song mm-hmm. and we can play music you know but if we do have a song that's like a specific topic you know and mm-hmm. then we can all communicate about the same topic you know so i i would just relate it to that of mm-hmm. just having a conversation yeah cool and allowing you know using our instruments as our speaking voices
0: yeah well, I want to mention uh, to everyone out there listening that uh, Victor's new website just went up uh, recently here, and, and you can get there by at victorwooten.com. dot com. And uh, Eddie and I were checking out the site, and it's it's beautiful. It looks yeah, great. Good
1: job! Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I appreciate uh, my friend Dave Zimick for building the new one, and Dave Welch who also works on it. And Dave Welch has built uh, all my previous websites, mm-hmm. but we'll be changing it frequently. And good. All, all kinds of stuff. We want to make people. Uh, I want to make it possible for people to learn uh a lot about themselves, not just about me from mm-hmm. the website.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh,
1: so there's you know, there's music learning tools, uh on the words of wisdom page, there's things that you know that'll cause you to think. And I want people to gain, you mm-hmm. know, from visiting my website, not sure. just you know, have me gain
0: from it. Yeah. Any uh any new music projects on the horizon for you?
1: Yeah. Well now that I've finished the, the audio book, which has a ton of music on it. Oh, okay. I scored the actual, the book, so it's a lot of music. Very cool. Now I, I can focus on my next project. So uh, uh, I think, yeah, February, I have most of the, the month of February off at home. Um, and I'll be busy working on the road up until then. So in February, I'll start recording a new record.
0: Okay, great. And I,
1: I, I have a, a few different concepts that, that I have in mind. So I'm just going to record a few pieces along the lines of these different concepts and see which one I like the best, so I'll, I'll, I'll allow the music to tell me which direction the next record is going to go.
0: In. Sure, that's great. Well, hopefully, we can stay in touch with you, and, and you know, maybe uh, down the road when uh, the next album comes out, or if there's the next book comes out, maybe we can uh, touch base again. I would
1: love that. Yeah, that's
0: great. and I wanted to thank uh, Danette Albetta, your manager. She was uh, real instrumental in helping uh, set this up. I wanted to thank her. I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I w- I could, I can't musically exist right now
0: without an And She's yeah. great. She was, she was great to us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah. And for those of you in Southern California, we also wanted to point out that uh, that Victor will be performing at Catalina's Barn Grill on January 17th through 20th. That's in uh, Hollywood, California. And for info and showtimes, please go to CatalinaJazzClub.com or call 323-466-2210. That's 323 466 2210 and CatalinaJazzClub.com. Victor, thank you. Thank you so much, man, uh, for spending time with us and uh, and uh,
2: we'll, uh, we'll see you later. Thank you so much.
0: All right, take care. Special thanks to Victor Wooten for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to the Inside Music Cast correspondents, Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Brian Pearson. And check out our new website at InsideMusicCast.com where you can join in on forum conversations about the musicians we cover here on Inside Music Cast, as well as a variety of other music-related topics. You can also catch up on past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.